Hello and welcome back to the future of figure skating. I'm Anna Keller and my guest today is Megan Duhamel. Megan is the 2018 Olympic bronze medalist in pairs and gold medalist in the team event. She and partner Eric Bradford also won two world titles and were known for pushing the envelope technically, being the first pair to land a throw quad at the Olympics. Since her retirement, Megan has focused on coaching and commentary and is known for being an outspoken advocate for other athletes, including being critical of the ISU and IOC's handling of Russian doping. In this episode, we dive into her thoughts on the state of para skating and the need for athlete-centered policies in sport. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. You're just finishing off the competitive season as a coach and you're doing that work and you're a mom. What have you been up to lately? Yeah, I've been doing like a little bit of everything the last couple of years. Right after I retired from skating in 2018, I kind of went right into coaching and was really, really busy. And then COVID hit and I kind of like started a different side of coaching when COVID happened and everything was locked down. I started doing a lot of off ice classes. A lot of skaters and clubs were asking me to do classes for them online on Zoom and from all over the world. Like I was, I remember being up at four in the morning for classes with skaters in Australia and in Thailand, but I didn't, I was like, I have nothing to do, but sit at home. So who cares if I'm up at four o'clock? So I did a lot of that. And I found like a really big passion for teaching skaters off ice. There's so few coaches, I think that understand the first, the importance of off ice. And second, like what figure skaters need for off ice, because it's such a unique sport. And I worked with so many trainers over the years that wanted to build muscle and do, you know, all sorts of different things in terms of like fitness training and figure skating is so specific because you need to be strong, but you need to be small and you need to be agile and you need to have power. It's just a big combination of things. So I really enjoy doing off ice and managing a lot of skaters off ice. So finding them dance teachers, Pilates teachers, along with with what I do, which is mostly like cardio and strength training and jump classes. So that's been where my life and my work is right now. I also teach a lot of seminars. I'm commentating with CBC for the skating competitions that are on TV in Canada, which unfortunately there's so few, but I have been commentating for the ones that are on and I have two kids that I'm raising and really busy with. So, you know, I'm kind of here, there and everywhere, but I love it. Yeah, that's really great. It's really cool to hear about the off-ice piece of that. I think during the pandemic, it was interesting to see people trying to translate and having to think about, well, what does the movement look like that I'm used to doing on the ice um, with some of the ISU keep training videos. I watched and tried to do some of the ones for pairs, mm -hmm. and it was really interesting trying to see people mm -hmm. figuring out like, well, if I lean on a table or if I have a suitcase over my head or like, what can I do to try to make that happen? It's such a unique component. And I credit so much of my success on the ice to the off-ice training I did and the off-ice training I managed for myself. I was in Montreal at the time and I went around to find specialists in every kind of field of off-ice training that I needed. Like I had, my coach was like, you're not flexible enough. You need to be more flexible. And I was like, okay. And he didn't provide me any resources. Uh, Skate Canada didn't provide me any resources. So I had to go find all those things myself. And I had to find a stretch coach. I ended up finding from the Cirque du Soleil and eccentrics classes and cardio and strength training and physio and massage and all these things that skaters in Canada were, were left to kind of find by ourselves because our federation and our coaches, at least at that time, were not providing all of that to us. So, you know, I really had a lot of fun, you know, finding all these really great trainers and 
as much as I trained on the ice, I would train off the ice. If I skated three hours a day, I was doing three hours of off ice a day in some capacity. And that's why I was able to stay injury free and why I was able to have a a long career. And I try to teach that to kids at a younger age now, like the importance of, I bring in a Pilates coach and they think it's a little bit boring. And like, I know, but you need to have a strong core. You need to have that hip mobility and flexibility so that you don't get injured and you can stay strong and healthy and you'll improve so much more. That's kind of like my, my main focus now is kind of bringing this attention to the younger generation of skaters so that you know, they're not going to get injured. We always learn about the importance of off ice once we're injured, but it would be nice if skaters could learn about the importance of it to avoid injuries. Yeah, definitely. When I was younger, I really hated doing warmups. I just felt so pointless. And then as you get older, you start to realize the value of it and why you need it, but you need it all the way along. Exactly. It's just when you're a kid, you think you can skip it. Yeah. And you, you kind of can at some extent, and then it catches up with you. And that's what I love. I love teaching like dynamic warm up, dynamic cool downs to skaters. I ask them like, what do you do when you warm up? And they're like, well, I do a couple jumps and that's it. Like, okay, but what about the mobility? What about like waking up your body, working on your speed, your acceleration, your balance before you get on the ice, you should have warmed up a little bit of your balance and your core. If you want to be ready to go and fire on the ice. And so you're working with skaters at all different ages and levels. There's a few top teams that are training with Bruno and your rink. Do you work with like the Japanese pair team as well? Yeah, they were doing a little bit of my off ice um, in last year and then they got injured. So they kind of like stepped back and work with more with their like physical trainers. And when they come back in May, they, they want to continue the off ice training with me. And that's, yeah, that's where my focus has been. I have a private lessons with five and six-year-olds all the way to the international pair skaters that skate in Oakville. So yeah, it's a wide range. They all have different needs, which is so much fun, you know, like playing around and I know the older skaters, I understand their bodies and what they need for training a little bit differently than I understand what a five-year-old needs, but I'm, I'm learning along the way and I really love it. That's great. There's been a lot of discussion, I think, this year about the state of the pairs field in general, because there was such a big change in the field from after the Olympics, a lot of teams retired or split and kind of just a few teams continuing at the very top and then a lot of space for other teams to come up. And I was hearing all season people saying, you know, is pairs dying? What What's going on? Why doesn't anybody want to do pairs? And I went to cover a lot of competitions as a reporter and I kept hearing this pairs is the least interesting discipline. And that would make me mad because it's my favorite discipline. Um, but I'm curious what you think about the big question of what is the state of the pairs discipline and what we can be doing to be growing it in terms of more skaters being interested in pairs and developing to a higher level and also seeing more countries develop pair teams. Yeah, um, I'm always a little bit baffled when people say pairs is the least interesting because I mean, it's the most dynamic, exciting discipline. And I, I mean, I love singles too, and maybe I'm biased. I was a pair skater, but um, when I watch skating and you get to see the jumps and the throws and the lifts and the twist and the intricate choreography and the emotional connection between two partners that pair skating brings, I mean, I don't think it gets much better than that, but I guess not many people <laughs> share our opinion or our views. You know, I see that a few things can be done to up the um, interest in skaters doing pair skating. So I remember when I was, I was about 11 or 12 years old and my sister competed at nationals. And after nationals, there was like a big mix and match 
kind of like a seminar. And my somebody had told my mom that I would be a good pair skater. I w- had just learned my double axle and I was super small and pretty spunky, kind of that fearless personality that we look for in pair skating. So my mom was like, well, we're already here. Why don't we register her for that? So I went to like this mix and match seminar at the end of nationals. And it was run by Louis Stong, who worked for um, the Canadian Skating Figure Skating Association back then. This was 1999, long time ago. And it was great. I was exposed. We were like, maybe 50 or 60 girls, maybe five or 10 boys. So the guys were working a lot harder than the girls (laughs) because they had to kind of skate with every one of us, but it was a great introduction and they did it every year after nationals. And um, that's one thing that I'm, you know, super disappointed and waiting for Skate Canada to start something like that again, because all the skaters and the coaches are there. This is the place to do something like that, a big mix and match. Also going around the country, and I'm speaking for Canada, but I I have a sense that the U.S. is kind of like in the same boat as Canada, where we can have skaters and coaches go around the country and do pair seminars, introduce pair skating to skaters at smaller clubs where they may not see it all the time. With younger skaters, with older skaters, you get a female Mm -hmm. pair skater, a male pair skater, and you have them go together to do all these seminars where they can skate with all these other skaters too. And Help install confidence in the coaches, these singles coaches, that you can start a pair team. You can start pair skaters because I think sometimes coaches are a little bit hesitant because they feel like they don't know pair skating um, when we're thinking like smaller clubs and they don't want to lose their skaters to a big center. So they just kind of don't bring up the opportunity for them to skate pairs. And I think that a lot of coaches could coach pairs at the beginning stage um, if they were just kind of given a couple of tools in order to do so. So I think it would be really cool if Skate Canada and the USFSA would do this. They would have kind of a traveling pair seminar going around, finding skaters. You know, maybe there's a young skater in Saskatchewan and another young skater in PEI, and they would be great together and they just don't know it. And nobody's going around there looking and directing these people. I had done kind of like on Instagram, I had I had done like a little question and answer and somebody had asked me about pair skating and popularity in Canada. And I got so many interesting responses responses like in DMs from people, parents saying, oh, no one ever told my kid that they'd be good at pairs. Like, I wish that my 11 year old would have been directed in that way because she would have been really good. She would have loved it, but nobody told us. And that's a little bit of, of an issue too. Whereas if I'm a coach, I'm not working for Skate Canada. I'm like my own independent coach. I can't go to Bob in Toronto and be like, you know what, Bob, you'd be a really good pair skater. If Bob's not my student, that's solicitation. I can't go to them and tell them this. It's Skate Canada's job to go to them and tell them this. Coaches can't do that. It's against our code of ethics. So I was getting a lot of DMs from parents um, and skaters being like, I wish that somebody would have told me and somebody would have directed me. We would, I would have loved to do pairs. And we can't. That's Skate Canada's job. And I really wish that they were doing something to go and find those people and tell them because there's so many skaters that are really great single skaters, um, but they could be really excellent pair skaters. And we see that with Leah, who's skating with Trent Michaud right now. What an amazingly intelligent decision it was for her. A good single skater, but a great pair skater. And there's so many of them. And I just don't think that they're being directed. And I really wish that there was some way that we were directing these people to pair skating. Yeah. So many of the skaters that I talk to who start pairs, especially a little later in their careers, maybe because they've had an injury or they've had some reason that made them feel like they were stalling out as a single skater and therefore they're going to do pairs and that it's sort of a second choice. And then when they start doing it, they really like it and think, well, maybe I should have been doing this all along, but (laughs) that there's that sort of 
it's the second choice when you haven't done as well as you would like, or you're facing some obstacle as a single skater. And I think it's really great to see people. I think you're an example of that. Adelie is an example, like talking about people who are really strong single skaters who also then um, are choosing to do pairs. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, like if it's so much of a stigma, like, oh, like, I guess if I'm not good enough for singles, I'll do pairs. If sometimes single skaters, they're training in a center where they're just not exposed to pair skating. You need to have training centers where singles and pair skaters are training together. So the single skaters are exposed to it. And most of the top pair skaters that have come from the Canadian system in recent years came from centers where it was their singles coach was also a pair coach. For me, Lee Barkel, when I did singles, he was also a pair coach. So it was an easy transition. Dylan Moskovich and Eric Radford had Paul Wirtz as their singles coach, who was also a pairs coach. Jessica Dubé and Bryce Davison had singles coaches that were also pairs coaches. And, you know, like it goes down more Jamie and David, the same thing. So I think there's a little bit of that um, in our history. So, you know, creating training centers where single skaters and pair skaters train together could really help that. Yeah. And do you see efforts being made to help get more coaches being able to take on pairs or feel comfortable with that or that kind of support? I'd like to see more efforts being made. If there is, I don't think it's enough. I think that more can be done to encourage that. But then again, I'm I'm traveling to Halifax next week to coach um, a little pair, two little pair teams, one that competed pre-novice last year and one that was juvenile. They're both making their way up. They're being coached by a singles coach who's learning pairs along with them. She hires me to work with them a lot on Zoom and a couple of times where I've gone out to Halifax and helped them. So, you know, kudos to the coaches like this that are trying and are directing their skaters down this path. And there are some of them, but I feel like there can be so much more if, you know, there was a position in place, like I said, where there was like those traveling seminars that go around. And they just help coaches get on the way of developing these young pair teams. But it's really cool to see when you do have teams that are training together like that and that pairs becomes part of the pathway that people can be on. It does change the dynamic. And I think it's much easier in some ways than when it's only one team trying to come together someplace. So I think it makes a lot of sense that coaches that are trying to start programs, even if not all of those skaters will stick with it for a long time, or maybe they'll just try it out for a little while, but it, it creates a nice team feeling. And it also like... Let skaters know that there's other opportunities in the sport. Um, and it's so great. And that's what we see in skating. Like you can do pairs, you can do dance, you can do synchro. There's so many avenues you can take um, your skating on. It doesn't have to be about landing that triple loop or triple flip. Like there's so many avenues that you go down. And the more clubs and the more coaches that are comfortable in each of these avenues and directing skaters to the avenue that they see is best suited to the skater is the best. And I remember as an 11 year old being directed to pair skating and I didn't do it at the time because I thought I was going to be too good at singles. <laughs> and that's honestly what, how I was at 11, 12 years old, which is fine. It was a little bit young anyways, but to have more coaches that are confident enough to direct their skaters down the right path would be a wonderful thing. You've had some things to say about the technical side of pairs and how much we want to keep pushing technical difficulty. There aren't teams right now that are working on quad throws or as much, you know, quad twists, those kind of high value technical elements. They're not worth as much. Do you see a pathway toward training those kinds of elements safely? And does it take having them be worth more in the points to make that happen? Yes, it will take having them be more worth more points for that to happen because 
it's just like it's logic. Um, when we were trying the throw triple axle in the short program and we landed it at Skate Canada in 2016, the effort of a throw triple axle versus a throw triple lutz was like enormously more. But when we landed it compared to our best throw triple lutz, it was like one point more. It just doesn't justify the amount of work it's taking, the mental load, the physical load, the time in training to do the throw triple axle. It just, it didn't balance out. It didn't make it worth it. So we took out the throw triple axle and just went back to the throw triple lutz. So I think if we want skaters to push the envelope, they do need to up the base value of those elements. The base value of the jumps is still the same. And that's why we're seeing all these really awesome and interesting combinations. I love the teams that I was seeing doing that triple toe, double toe, double axle, like, like Leah and Trent and the Japanese. Um, and also we saw double sow, double axle, double axle from Spencer and Emily, all these really awesome creative jump combinations because the jumps are worth a lot more. So it was worth it to do all that. And I think that it would be advantageous for the ISU to continue to put those base values back up where they belong. The throw quad sow cow was worth eight points when I did it. And single skaters doing a quad sow cow would get 11 to 13 points. It was still so much less than a single skater. And I remember having a conversation with Javier Fernandez and explaining that to him. And he was like, it doesn't make sense. Why is your quad sow worth so much less than my quad sow? And he was baffled by it. And I was like, just the way the system is. But, but for us, mathematically, it still made sense because our throw triple sow wasn't going to get those plus threes back then when it was only plus three. So it made sense to do a zero throw quad sow. We still got more points for it. But I think that the ISU for the sport's sake, for the audience's excitement, there's a lot of things that like changes that need to be done, not even just technically, but I think um, why are we putting a cap on these things can you imagine somebody telling Usain Bolt, you, you can't run that fast. You can't run that fast. We're not going to like value it the way that, that we value other things in your sport. No, he's the fastest. He's the fastest. You can do the most. You can do the most. And I think it should be up to the skaters to decide if an element is dangerous for them and not up to the ISU to decide that it's too dangerous. These girls are doing quad lutzes and quad flips and the ISU has no issue with valuing those at a really high level. But they've decided that for pairs to do quads, it was more dangerous. And I just think it, it was wrong. And the ISU said that they were lowering the values because of the risk factor, but nobody, they didn't have any doctors or medical team or anybody come and ask Eric and I, who were the only team to consistently land a clean quad sow cow without injury ever. Nobody came and asked us to do like medical studies or ask us about the risk factor and how much we were injured and study our process to the throw quad. They just decided it was too dangerous, yet here we were doing it with no danger at all. Um, and same with the teams doing quad twist. Tarasova and Morozov with a great quad twist. It wasn't dangerous for them to do that. It would be dangerous for me to do that, but for them it wasn't. They picked their own avenues to go down and their own way to get points where they could. And I just, I, I think the ISU needs to, to rethink that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I talked to Matteo Glorice and Lucrezia Vicari at Europeans and they're, you know, they're a new team. They're already talking about how they want to do throw quads next season. But Matteo was saying that they were actually watching what you and Eric did and saying that that's what they wanted to copy in their technique because they thought Lucrezia could rotate very quickly so that they could they could land a throw that didn't have to be huge. It could be safer and controlled and be able to still complete the rotations. And I thought that was, you know, it was very interesting thinking about what is the how to do it, do it safely and use the strengths of the skaters to push where they could. Yeah. And I think that 
skaters should decide this. And Eric and I had a really like methodical approach to, to all of our skating, but really to the throw quad where Eric always said it was no more effort for him to do a throw triple or a throw quad. He just had to be a little bit more accurate on the throw quad. If he was a little off on the takeoff of a throw triple, it didn't matter. I could still do it. But if he was a little off on the takeoff of a throw quad, I, w- I wouldn't be able to land it as easily or at all. But when we went from learning the throw triple sow to learning the quad sow, it wasn't that we needed a bigger throw to do four rotations. I had plenty of room in the height that I had on the triple. I just needed to be a little bit quicker, a little bit sharper on the landing. And it was also a big thing for us was the safety of training it. Our coach rarely let us do more than three a day ever. And even when I was like, I feel good. I can still do more. Let me do more. They were always holding me back and saying, no, that's it. That's the limit. No more today. And um, when we were learning the throw quad, which was, you know, an, an adventure to learn it, if I popped two or three of them in a row, that's it. We weren't allowed to try anymore that day because that showed that I was mentally not in a place to execute it or try it safely. So we were not reckless learning it. And I think that that was a big thing when I heard stories and talked to other skaters who've learned throw quads. And I've talked to the Chinese who have told me, you know, like we just do dozens and dozens of them every day. Well, that could potentially be why it was creating an injury. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense about how you train as much as what you're training. Yeah, if we ever had like a problem where I wasn't able to land it and I wanted to do more, our coach was always made sure that we went back and we corrected it with a triple. We could make the correction on the triple and the next day the quad would be there and be better. You didn't find that it was difficult to go back to doing the solid triple after working on the quad. You could eventually. <laughs> Not at first. I remember I kind of like lost my throw triple sow after doing a quad, but then eventually, like after so many years, I I was able to easily. Another technical question. Would you like to see there be a choreographic lift or spin in pairs, something that didn't have levels? Yes. I mean, we have seen the sport of ice dance, you know, grow so rapidly and so beautifully and amazingly with all of their um, creativity and creative elements. And, you know, that's because Ice Dance has its own technical committee within the ISU. So they're able to make these decisions and allow them to move forward a little bit faster. Um, But I remember like 2002, 2003, Paris had a requirement to do a carry lift. That was one of their lifts. It had to be a carry lift. And it allowed skaters to be more creative without worrying about rotating or changing positions. A carry lift could have a, a more unique position because the man was not rotating or you didn't have to change positions or go to one arm. And that was a really, really cool thing. I don't know why they ever took it out, but I'd love to see creative lift, creative spin. Um, There's a lot of really cool spins that we're now seeing the dancers do, but we pair skaters um, are able to do in shows. Eric and I always did a lot of really cool spins in shows that would just be useless to our competition programs because they weren't worth a level or a feature. They weren't in a camel spin or a sit spin or an upright position and it just wasn't worth it. And it would be really cool to see some of those moves in pair skating. And I personally just find pair spins a little bit boring. I think that we can make do with a more creative approach to it and have a creative spin instead of a pair combination spin and just open the doors for skaters to find different ways to express themselves without following a guideline of grab my foot, go on one arm, rotate the other way, do a difficult entry, do a difficult exit. It'll be a little bit less like cookie cutter and skaters could express a little bit differently if we opened up that door. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially in the short program where you see everyone do just about the same 
hair spin or their side by side spin, they start to look very similar. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to be able to compare apples to apples, but it does get boring after a while. Yeah. Like maybe there should be like some component of the footwork in the short program where there has to be a creative lift within the footwork. Mm. That would be really cool. Some teams already do it, maybe a small lift, but like, what if a creative lift was part of your footwork sequence or a creative spin was part of your footwork sequence? What if that was a requirement to get a level four? That would be a really cool kind of like process to more creativity within the short program. Yeah, that would be cool. What do you think about Skate Canada's decision to allow there to be pairs and dance teams of any gender? I think it's a very progressive movement and I'm all for everybody being included and diversity. I think honestly, we're more apt to see more of it within ice dance, just because I think the risk factor on pair elements, if people are more similar in size is going to be a little bit more risky. I don't know if I foresee too many people or I've heard very many people within pair skating saying that that's something that they would try, but we have heard a lot of ice dancers vocal about it. And um, I think it'll be a more seamless transition to begin that with ice dance than with pairs, maybe eventually into pair skating. I just, I'm not quite sure I like envision a triple twist being done by two men or, or two females right now at this moment. It's interesting to see there are definitely physical requirements to having a, a pair be successful and be safe. And then how much of that may, we can generalize that that's going to apply to gender, but it doesn't always. And so there may be individual skaters that it may make sense for. And, you know, this is something that I, I think a lot about because I'm an adult pair skater and I am the lifting partner in our pair because I'm almost six feet tall and my partner is five, six and we're it, like, that's what works for us. Like, I always think about it like a risk factor. And I am the first one to always, I don't want to deter people from pair skating to say that it's, it's unsafe or it's too risky because I'm living proof that it's not. But, you know, at some point it's like, okay, what is going to be safe to do and what won't? I guess like more at a high level, but I can envision Sean Sawyer doing overhead lifts and doing a triple twist and doing throws and doing death spirals and being really great at it if the right partner and right size was with him. So who knows what the future holds? I I think, you know, it's great that more people can be included and I, I love it. I just see this at this moment being a little bit more popularized within ice stands to begin. In some ways it takes people seeing whether it's possible to then want to change the rules. Maybe you need to like submit a video. Yeah. 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 To the, to somebody at USFSA, like to get the ball rolling, to be like, I'm an example of what's possible. Maybe that's what skating in the U.S. will need is to see it with their own eyes and see what's actually possible. Thanks. Um, and it's been fun. Like I said, we've gone to train in Canada a couple of times in Winnipeg and in Halifax, and it's been fun to be in that environment where people are a little like less, not that anyone in the U.S. hasn't been like welcoming of us, but there was a little bit more interest or, you know, the kids in the rink kind of seeing like, oh, somebody is doing that. That's interesting. And having a little more of a concept of it. Where I see Skate Canada's decision, and you just mentioned kids in the rink, this is exactly what I think is going to help encourage skaters to follow these disciplines more because you could be in a super small town and there's no boys that skate in your town and you want to do dance or you want to skate pairs. Um, and you know what, at the beginning level, juvenile pairs or dance is pretty much the same anyways, the same like skills that you learn, right? So it could be a way to gear skaters to that path if they don't have the option of, of somebody from the other sex to skate with. Yeah. 
But I was always told when I was skating as a kid that I was too tall to be a skater because I was already at age, you know, nine or 10, like the tallest person in my rank. But I think that if I'd had the, the idea that, that doing pairs or doing dance was an option, I think it would have motivated me in a different way as a kid instead of just feeling like, oh, well, I'll keep doing it because I like it, but I'm never going to compete even at a local, <laughs> regional, whatever level. Because having that sense that, oh, because of because of the shape of my body, therefore I can't do it, as opposed to saying, well, you're just not trying to go after the right part of this. Yes. Yeah. You needed to be directed down. Well, it, at the time it wasn't there anyways, but being directed down this path, um, that this could be an avenue for you. Speaking of sort of the absence of male partners. That's something that I've talked to a number of skaters about how the sort of relative scarcity of men in the sport can lead to there being extra pressure on the women in a team to be perfect, not to be disposable is the most extreme way of saying that. But I'm wondering if that's something that you ever encountered or have seen in other teams and just sort of how you deal with some of the pressures that can come with being judged you know, it's a judge sport and some of the pressures that can come with that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I, I totally agree with you about the pressure that the female partner um, can be under. Although my experience air skating in Canada is that we actually have more men skaters and less females. Um, that's always been the issue in Canada, at least, is that finding females to do pairs has been extremely difficult. And there's been some really great guys that either just quit or um, wait for years to try to find somebody. And I think that's because of a couple of things. Sometimes it's because the male partner is on the smaller side. I say that in quotations of pair skating. So they are looking for a very specific type of female partner and these super small skaters that land triples and want to do pairs few and far between. And I think that that's what can cast like that, like you're talking about that pressure on the female partners. Through my experience now, looking back, maybe I should have felt that disposable am I a disposable option um but I never I never did feel like that when I was skating I was always like super focused on the task at hand and doing my job the best that I could when I was skating I had supportive partners and coaches around me yeah we do see that a little bit and a little bit of like, I don't I don't want to say this to sound rude but sometimes the egos of male partners that they might have a really good partner and think that they can find somebody better and we have a saying that they want to break up with their partner to find somebody better. And we always have this saying, like, are you trading a loony for four quarters? Are you just going to trade a loony and get four quarters for it? Then stay with what you have. And I've heard coaches and as a coach bring up when, when male partners are looking at, you know, kind of getting rid of one partner and going on to another one. It's like the benefits have to be so much more. The opportunities have to be so much more if you're going to make that decision. You know, it's a tricky thing. I had three partners. Um, I ended my first partnership because I thought that I wanted to just do singles and didn't want to do pairs anymore. My second one ended because my partner retired. And my third one ended because we literally retired together. So I was never in a position as a competitive skater where I was kind of pushed aside for somebody else. So it's super hard for me to understand how that feels, even though I have seen it from the outside, it's different to see it from the outside than it is to live it personally. But I think that female pair skaters are the toughest breed mentally, physically, emotionally, and they're often the ones managing and carrying the team and carrying the, the burden of whatever's happening within the team. And they are definitely not disposable and female pair skaters can come in all shapes and forms and be amazing at what they do and bring different things to the table. I just wish there was more of them. 
Yeah. One of the things that we've seen this year is a number of, I'm thinking both of Trent and Leah and Danny and Ellie in the US. And I mentioned Matteo in Italy and all these three teams with very experienced male partners, their female partner wanted to retire or move on to the next thing. And then they came in with a new partner who I think in each of these cases, you know, was coming from singles and was much younger. And so it's just been interesting watching those three teams and their development this year and being able to see how much having one experienced partner can help a team take off like that. And I think there's also been a lot of scrutiny on those teams as well because of the potential for a power imbalance that could come from a situation like that with like one young woman and one older guy who is a lot more experienced in it. I don't think potential does not equal there being a problem in any of those cases. And I don't say that, but it's something that we've looked at with those age differences and then thinking about some of the junior teams that have also had big age gaps and then get structurally caught in with the gap between junior and senior. So do you have thoughts about like putting together teams that have a big age gap? What needs to happen to make those partnerships work? I think it's about emotional maturity. I don't think that we can look at a number because there can be two 15-year-olds that have a completely different emotional maturity and capacity. So I think that it's really hard to put a limit on on those type of numbers. You know, I remember being in a situation similar to the teams that you were talking about when I started skating with Craig Bunton, where he had been to the Olympics and he had been a national champion. And I was like, these are all the things I dream of doing. Oh my gosh, like, I can't believe it. This person picked me of all people. And that was a difficult position to be in. And I, I had a, put a lot of pressure on myself um, in that the beginning stages of that. But as far as age gap, I don't really see a big issue in it. I know sometimes like, you know, you're at the point where it could look a little bit silly if somebody looks like super old and super young, those things can, and they're telling, skating to this romantic type of music and telling these emotional stories, like that could be a little bit tricky. But, you know, I think it all depends on the emotional maturity of these skaters, the understanding of the male partner who is usually the older one. Um, I don't want to stereotype that. It's just usually the case and, and the, the examples that you gave um, and having the right people around them. And I don't, I don't see an issue with it as long as everybody is being taken care of, everybody's needs are being taken care of, and that the older partner is a partner and not a coach. That's the most important thing. And that's where you get trouble is when one partner, and it usually comes when you have those experience gaps or age gaps, um, where the, the older partner becomes subconsciously becomes more of a coach. And that's a big no-no. You have to be a partner, not a coach. Let the coach do the coaching. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. And I could see how that would, that could start to get it in the way of developing the right kind of working relationship. Yeah, because the the partner that you're working with, they need to feel like they are one with you. You're on the same level. Neither one is above each other. You're working together. And the coach is the one calling the shots. And when one partner starts to become or act like the coach, it really leaves the other one out. Yeah. So switching topics a little bit, um, I wanted to ask you, because you've been very outspoken about the need to maintain the ban on Russian skaters and the issues around doping. And so what do you think should be done next? Or I guess, what would you like to see the ISU doing both immediately, but also how do we have an anti-doping system that works in skating when we're seeing that it may be possible for people to evade it for a long time. You know, it's just something that I don't think we really have a great 
grasp on necessarily, like the even what the extent of the problem is. And so and this problem's been ongoing for a long time. It just all exploded and the whole world found out proof that it's been going on. You know, like just a funny story. Like I remember being at Skate America when you're at dinner with um, a Chinese skater and they left a pill bottle on the dinner table and then left. And my partner, Craig, was like, I'm taking this and I'm going to bring it to a chemist and see what these pills are. And they ended up being weight loss pills. Who knows if they were his or his partners that the person who left them with us. We just, we know these things are happening. We've known them all along. I've had skaters um, tell me that their age is not the age that that they are presented to be. One skater was telling me about her birthday and she was like, well, I'm not actually turning 19. I'm just turning 18 and proceeded to tell me why her age was changed when she was only 13 years old. And, you know, like we've known about these things, us in skating, we, we know about them. We know about the drugs. We know about the age. And I mean, I guess like looking back, I'm like, why did I just like allow people to tell me this and not do anything? But I was still competing. Like it's kind of in an awkward position, but um, no, I think the ISU and the IOC is long overdue to give some Olympic medals to the Team USA and Team Japan athletes to start with. They, I don't care, give them the silver and the bronze, give them what they want. And if it needs to be changed, it needs to be changed. But this is, this is absolutely ridiculous that we have gone this long. We are over a year and they are still without their medals, without their moment um, with their teammates on the Olympic podium. The time has passed, the moment is gone, but they still deserve these medals. Um, and that's on the ISU and the IOC. Like that's enough is enough with that. I think that we need to remove any sort of doping agency that doping control that's happening within Russia. And if Russian skaters or athletes, not even skaters, athletes are ever to return, they have to go and do all their doping in, in other countries. They cannot be doing any sort of doping within Rashada anymore, um, Russia's WADA system. They need to go elsewhere and be more accountable. And I think that we need to have the ISU mandate and international safe sport program coaches doing interviews saying that they don't allow their skaters to drink water and they, you know, they make their skaters train while they have a broken bone and, you know, belittle their athletes. They, they do this publicly. The ISU should be, you know, suspending them and they are not allowed to be able to coach anymore within ISU competitions. I think that so much more can be done about this and everybody is scared to do anything to the Russians. That's it. That's the end of the day. And I've been told that I've been told that when I have asked questions, why is this not being done? Why is this not being done? We don't want to upset the Russians. We don't want to upset the Russians. That's what I've been told throughout my entire career. I remember questioning the, the Sochi Olympics and the team event and when very suspicious doping was happening to us at the Olympics in Sochi and questioning that and people telling me very high up, um, people telling me, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We just don't want to upset them. So, you know, nothing's going to get done unless somebody wants to put their foot forward and upset the Russians. Um, and we need to be more aggressive with that. Um, the skaters that compete, compete at international competitions, they deserve a fair playing field. They deserve the skaters in Russia and anywhere, not even just in Russia, the skaters all over the world, they deserve coaches that are supportive and understanding of them and want the best for them as human beings, not just medals. Um, and this goes, you know, all over the skating world. And I think that the ISU can mandate a lot more. Yeah, as I've been trying to understand more about the structure of it, it really does seem like there is a passing of the buck of federation saying, well, we can't do anything. This is the ISU and the ISU saying, well, we can't do anything because the, the federations need to act. And it's like, well, who has actual power in this mm -hmm. situation? But I would have think that there would be an opportunity here 
with the Russians sort of not in the room to have more of those discussions, but maybe that thought of the war we banned that that's far enough and we're not going to go any further. I have been surprised to not see more coming up in discussion across this year, given what seems like an opportunity. And you know why that's happening is because while the ISU is holding all their meetings at the world championships, who's in the meetings, all the members of the Russian Skating Federation, they were all there. They were all invited guests of the ISU. So <laughs> they're sitting at those meetings. They're there. The ISU is inviting them to come to events. Alexander Lekernik, who's the former vice president of the ISU, was invited by the ISU to attend events this year. Why are they doing this? <laughs> oh, I get, I get so angry. I get so angry. And it has nothing. It's about what's right, what's fair. It's about giving the athletes what they deserve. The sport is nothing without the athletes. It should be athletes first, every sport, because there is no sport without the athletes. They are the core. So if you are not taking care of the athletes and prioritizing the athletes, you're doing a disservice and a disrespect to the sport. Yeah. So what can be done to make the athletes, you know, have a stronger voice in the system? I mean, I look at other sports where there are, I mean, and not only in sort of professional sports where you have players unions and players associations and, you know, much more structural power, but even in some other Olympic sports, we've seen athletes across countries, you know, competitors really join together to push for particular changes in the sport. And that's not happening in, in skating, whether it's cultural, structural or whatever, but since you're so outspoken, but you're, I'm sure it's easier not being, you know, in the competitive system, but. Oh, I was always told to be quiet when I was a competitive athlete. Oh my God. Like Megan, would you stop tweeting? Megan, would you stop saying this in the media? Megan, would you stop saying this? Like, just be quiet all the time, all the time. I think my best guess is because skating is a judge sport. We've just always grown up in the sport. Like a little bit afraid of being judged for our actions off the ice or what we say off the ice. I, I really think that it stems maybe from that. Most of the other sports where athletes are a little bit more aggressively focused, they're not coming from judge sports. I think that's a little bit of it. And when I talk to other skaters and other coaches, 90% of them I talk to are as passionate about this and on the same page I am, but they just don't vocalize it the same way that I try to. And I, I myself have a hard time understanding why as well. We do have athlete representatives within the ISU. The athlete representative was at the Olympics when this whole thing happened. I don't understand why they weren't able to put their foot down more um, and take more of a stance for the athletes because that's their job. That's their position that they're hired for. But yeah, my best guess is growing up being judged your whole life. You're just a little bit worried to speak up. I think that that's where it comes from. It makes sense, but it does, yeah, that culture leads to just so many, so many of the problems. I mean, I think like you're saying, what does it take to make it be athlete centered is at the root of just about all of the litany of things that you could point at that are wrong in skating right now. And I think that a little bit of like figure skating, I don't know how to say this like in the right way, and I'm probably going to say it and it's going to sound offensive. And I don't mean to sound offensive when I say it. But it's like figure skating is like a little bit of like an old man's club. Like it's being run by a lot of older men who they don't have the same vision as the younger generation. They're set in their ways a little bit more. I don't know. That's that's how it seems to me from from where I see it. Yeah. I mean, there's so many of these 
institutions where you have to work your way up slowly through many, many ranks, not rocking the boat as you go. It's hard for someone to then get to a position of leadership with any kind of you know, vision for anything other than maintaining the status quo. I mean, I think about that with having talked to a number of judges and how the entire process of judging is to make sure that your judging is not, you know, how you're trained is to make sure that you don't judge differently than the judges that are already in place. And that the whole process of accountability is to assume, make it so that everyone is around the same mark. And it's like, well, but what if that mark is wrong? Like, what if, what if the norms that we're all, that we are, everyone is being trained to are not correct? There's very little, you know, space yeah. to push against that. Yeah. And it's like, to make change, you have to rock the boat. To make change, you have to like stand up for something that nobody else is standing up for. There needs to be one, then there's more, then there's more. And it, it trickles down and um, you will rock the boat and you will upset people and you will, you know, create a little bit of havoc, but along the way, that's what's going to happen along the way for change to happen. I know that there's been a couple of American skaters that are pretty vocal in the U.S. Olympic Committee also repeatedly requesting for their skaters to have their Olympic medal. I'm not sure why not more of those skaters are more vocal about it from, from Japan and the U.S. and like theoretically from Canada too, who would be inserted into that bronze medal position should Russia be completely eliminated. I mean, if I was one of those skaters, I would be like going after that with a punch and everybody <laughs> that works in skating at the higher level would hate it, but I would be going after it because nothing will be done if somebody doesn't. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's, I've seen a, you know, a little bit of, you know, press conference with the empty metal box and that kind of thing, but it does also, I think in some ways surprise me that there isn't more kind of active use of the, of the media in this and to try to athletes and coaches and even the national yes. federations to try to use the media to push on the ISU and the IOC to do more. It's, it seems like there's not a lot of sense of like whether there can be kind of that external pressure on these institutions and they're so insulated in a lot of ways, but they also do depend on advertisers and the overall image that the sport has in the public um, at the end of the day. And so, you know, if the athletes are publicly unhappy, that does have power in that broader world as well. I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know when I don't even have any insight into when something is going to happen into change that's coming into anything. I talk to skaters and coaches that, like I said, that feel the same way, but I, I don't know what's happening in that, you know, small inner circle of workings of the ISU and the IOC. I think that they're playing a little bit of, it's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's you. Oh, we need to wait for WADA. And now I just saw that court date for Valieva's trial is now like pushed back and has no date. So everything's bearing on this court trial that's just not even happening. Yeah. Athletes, I think, understandably have not wanted to stand out on their own and talk about this. And I think it's been interesting to see even in the competitions, like for a lot of good reasons, there are very, A, there are very few actual journalists who go to skating competitions. And I say this as a non-journalist pretending to be a journalist, you know, going to skating competitions. It's not my profession, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan and be an amateur and I enjoy doing it, but... <laughs> you know, and that's not what I'm trained to do. So, you know, A, there aren't that many actual journalists, you know, B, the idea is, well, this person's just skated. They're here to think about their skating. We're not going to ask them about like systemic political issues in this moment. And so the few times that people were being asked, it was by Russian journalists, which was then I think understandably felt like a trap. And it was often the Russian speaking skaters for other federations who were being asked those mm -hmm. questions. 
in a hostile way. And so there wasn't the issue being raised in the, this limited interaction that, you know, one place that athletes potentially do have to speak out where they have a microphone literally in front of them, that's not happening. But I did very much enjoy the, one of the press conferences at Europeans when uh, Matteo Rizzo was asked, you know, in the, the whole, um, I think it was after the short program, they were all being asked, you know, do you want the Russians back? And they all kind of looked at each other and nobody said anything for a minute. And finally, Matteo was like, I think we're all really happy with like how things are right now, which was sort of a, could have been interpreted as a non-answer of just a like, we're happy to be on our podium. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't talk to us. But I think it also had some implications of what I think the actual opinion of most of the skaters is that they are pretty happy to not have the Russians there right now while things are the way they are. For the athletes and on the official side too, I think that they feel like things are more fair the way it is right now as they're not there. And if they are to be returned, if they do return and when they do return, we have to find a way to keep things fair in skating for fair sport, clean sport. And that's for the skaters and the officials. Certainly found it in a lot of ways, a more interesting season to follow, not feeling like there was as much predictability. And that's, you know, that says as much about how those skaters were treated by judges in the past as it does about the skaters themselves. But it was great to be able to watch mm -hmm. worlds and think any one of, you know, a, a group of seven or eight skaters could have been on the podium in almost any, you know, maybe any discipline except dance. You had a, a, some variability and makes it much more interesting to follow. Yeah. I just had two more questions for you. One is just a, about nutrition, because I know that's something that you're really interested in. And I'm curious how your process for finding, you know, nutrition plans that work for you as an athlete and what advice you would give for someone who's competitive, trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate that world of so much conflicting information and good and bad messages. Yeah. Well, I mean, step number one is eat and listen to your body. When your body wants, to, wants fuel, give it fuel and find the right types of fuel. I mean, I think that that's really important is that we need to fuel our bodies in all the right ways at the right times. And that's something I learned. I have two like different certifications within holistic nutrition. I studied for six years nutrition. So a wide, wide range, but it was about fueling our body for sport anyways, um, at the right time. So eating my proteins post-performance and eating fats and carbs before performing and having, you know, a good breakfast and all these things that align together with my training and making sure that I was very consistent with my diet. So it didn't, if I had a day off on Saturday, what I ate didn't change. It was just the same. And it didn't mean that I didn't eat and I didn't measure serving sizes or anything like that. Like if I was really hungry, I had two bowls of oatmeal in the morning instead of one. Didn't matter. I learned to be confident as I listened to my body and what my body needed and what it wanted um, and never denying myself anything, because that's one thing when we deny ourselves something, we want it more. Um, and so I always had like cookies or cupcakes or muffins or like cakes and like treats. And every single morning I would have a treat with my breakfast and then it would satisfy me. And sometimes at night I'd have another treat and sometimes I would just leave it. And I never like frowned upon that. I never felt guilty about that. I was listening to my body and what it wanted. And I was working hard all day long. So I didn't feel the need to sacrifice what I ate. I also was surrounded by a team and by coaches who were not weighing me and who didn't really speak about weight. You know, like I can remember a couple of times in my career when my coaches 
like maybe when I was younger, when my coaches were like, oh, like, how's your off-ice training going? That was their way to tell me like, maybe you should be doing more off-ice training. You're getting out of shape. I think that was like their, their way to message it. So um, I never had coaches that really put too much pressure on that. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that, but being any athlete, you need, your body is your greatest tool. It's your greatest asset. And you need to take care of it on every level. And that goes from mentally, it goes from nutrition and what you're putting in your body, your recovery for your training. Um, so everything you do is so important. If you want your body to give you the best, you need to give it the best. And, you know, I, that was always a big focus of mine. So eating really well and eating healthy was, you know, what I needed to do if I wanted my body to give me what I wanted it to do. You know, it went too to recovery and going to every single day, whether it was acupuncture or osteo or chiropractor or massage or whatever it was, every single day I needed to take care of my body so I could help it recover. And I think that we see now more skaters and coaches speaking about working with nutritionists and prioritizing that kind of went through the kind of like slipped through the cracks a little bit for a while. Um, but I do see more of a priority on that and a priority of coaches saying, um, how are you fueling your body instead of what are you eating or what are you not eating? It's about fueling your body. Um, and I think that that's a really great way to, to word it and bring about that angle. There's that idea of really learning how to listen to what you need as well. I mean, that it goes beyond food, the self-confidence that goes with understanding and being able to take care of yourself. You know, it's a really great way instead of trying to find, you know, what is the perfect source of like, you know, if I just follow the right plan, I will be good I and mean, the right external advice, but learning for yourself as well. Well, yeah, it's like trial and error with anything, right? You need to trial and error, listen to yourself, listen to your gut, listen to your body. How does your body feel when you do this? How does your body feel when you do this? Okay. It's better when I do this. I do that again and again and again, but yeah, that usually only comes with experience and age as well. I think. Yeah. I always like to finish with the question, the broad question of the podcast, which is how can we make skating be healthier and more inclusive? And that's a very broad question. And we've touched on a number of parts of it, but are there things that we haven't talked about or that you'd want to emphasize? I think we can like with this question kind of come back to what I was talking about with athlete focused and athlete centered. It's not about the coach's glory. It's not about the ISU's political gains. It's about the athletes. It's not about the money. It's about the athletes. If you want people to watch skating, you need good athletes. That's the, that's the core. And without good athletes, we don't have a sport. I would really like more focus to be on the athletes, on the athletes' well-being, on the athletes' development, on the prioritizing everything athlete. That's what sport should be about right now. And that's how skating is going to be healthier and be a better version of what it is and how we will be able to put more people in the stands and more fans that want to watch the sport, more reporters at events because people are more interested in learning about the sport and you know that all will happen more sponsors that will all happen if we focus on the athletes and giving the athletes what they need um, and creating a sport that allows the athletes to thrive yeah definitely thank you so much Megan it's been great to talk with you yeah thank you I can talk forever about skating I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Megan Duhamel you can look at the show notes for the transcript and links to other resources you can follow Megan on Twitter at MHJD underscore 85 and on Instagram at Megan Duhamel. You can also learn more about her nutrition work through her blog and Instagram at Lutz of Greens. 
You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics or people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the future of figure skating on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.